Mark chapter 6, and we'll just be reading the first three verses of Mark 6. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And we do pray, God, that we would all have ears to hear what you would have for us to hear this morning about the glorious, wonderful Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let it go deep down into our inmost being and become ingrained in our brains that you are our life, our hope, you are everything for us and to us and through us. Amen. This passage gives us an understanding of Jesus's hometown's misunderstanding about Jesus, his divinity and his humanity. So today we will focus on the humanity of Christ. Jesus has always been fully God, but also, since his incarnation, fully human. What we are going to hear today is reminding us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, fully God, divine in every possible way, but also he is a true, complete human person in every way, though of course without sin like us. Now, speaking about these things can be quite dangerous. One must be very careful when speaking of the humanity of Christ. We can easily get into trouble and start speaking about the mixture of his two natures, which is not true at all. These are two totally distinct natures, human and divine, in one person, Jesus Christ. Fully divine at all times, from eternity past, during his time on earth, and continuing forward into eternity. No gaps, no handoffs of his divinity to the Father, even when a child. Don't ask me to explain exactly how that works. Like some things in Christology, that is the study of Jesus Christ, we cannot fully understand all the workings of how Jesus is both God and human, in one person. As theologian Wayne Grudem says, it is the most profound mystery in all the universe. Another favorite theologian, A.W. Pink, known for his Puritan-like teachings, wrote in the 1920s, it is both useless and impious for any man to attempt an explanation of the wondrous and unique person of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
But then, of course, he wrote extensively in an attempt to do just that, as many have and continue to do. This is because we can and must be certain of fundamental scriptural facts that are at the core of our faith. So to begin, we will quote a portion of the Creed of Chalcedon from AD 451, written as a response to heretical views concerning the nature of Christ. This creed is basic Orthodox Christian doctrine we agree to today when it comes to the two natures of Christ, human and divine. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person, not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the self-same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that the belief that Jesus Christ is God, believing the deity of Christ, is exceedingly important. Why is it very important to every human being? Because they must be saved. So if you will notice, several false religions and heresies deny the deity of Christ. And of course, Satan is so smart and clever that he focuses on promoting that specific denial. If the deity of Christ is denied by a seemingly religious person, then they can't be saved. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are perfect examples of denying his deity, and yet they use much of the Bible to live their lives. He's sort of just a good prophet, but we Bible-believing Christians guard carefully against that. Yet, we must watch our flank, so to speak, that we not let anyone deny the humanity of Christ either, since it is also crucially important to our faith and salvation. The importance of that truth throughout 1 John, things like this, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. A perfect man, fully human, a sinless life lived, our great high priest, completing the work his father gave him to do on earth, then taking our penalty for sin as a man, dying, giving up his human spirit in death. Three main points then in reviewing today the humanity of Christ. Firstly, we should be in awe of his walk as a man, the extent of his suffering, not just on the cross, but each day living his sinless life. Secondly, seeing his examples as a human to follow, saying, if he can do it that way, I'll make it my life's goal to do it that way. Not saying I'll be God, but he's the superhero I want to be like. And thirdly, if we see and believe the first two from the scriptures, then we can go to him, the living Christ, to help us in our time of need. 
Now, our text this morning may not be the typical example of pointing to the humanity of Christ in the scriptures. That is often done by going to Hebrews, but in these verses, we see several points about his humanity revealed. Verse 1 begins by saying he went to his hometown of Nazareth. And in the synagogue there, he began to teach. And then the townspeople say several things about him by asking five questions, with these questions being asked in their astonishment. One question, how could he have such wisdom? Another question, how does Jesus do these miracles? They clearly knew of his miracles. Well, why this astonishment at all this? Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? This is just plain old Jesus, the local carpenter, son of Mary, one of several brothers and sisters. This is just a regular guy. Besides this, they would be offended that their expectations of the Messiah were not anything like this regular kid from the neighborhood they saw grow up. His divine nature is there, but until he began his ministry, only his human nature was on vivid display. So was there no hint that Jesus was, as the scripture says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel? That's what Simeon said when Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, Jesus is born of a virgin, grows up playing with his brothers and sisters, surely doing things a Jewish boy does in the tiny town of Nazareth, a town of only about 500 people where everyone knows everyone's business. Then he shows up at the temple in Jerusalem at age 12, speaking with the teachers, and they were amazed at his understanding and answers. So he grew from just a baby to have great wisdom. But there is no library for Jesus to go to, to browse various writings, to feed his appetite for wisdom. But there is this synagogue we read about in today's passage. Now, in the Jewish culture, there was very, very much verbal transmission of scriptures, a great deal of memorization such that we, particularly with modern technology, can't conceive. And we can certainly believe there is something extraordinary about this human person, Jesus, but he was, we expect, living as a regular Jewish boy. And if so, he would have begun his schooling in the synagogue at age five and there learn virtually nothing but the Torah, his entire schooling based on the Old Testament. Children in Israel were brought up to learn by rote from an early age. As children, they were made to learn very long passages by heart. So even in the normal speech of the time, men and women would echo scriptures. Even the historian Josephus, apparently not a believer, wrote, it is in the Bible that the finest knowledge is to be found in the source of happiness. What did Paul say to young Timothy 
how from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings. And even though back then women would not necessarily be schooled as well, consider Jesus' mother Mary. When pregnant with Jesus, she spontaneously starts praising God when visiting Elizabeth. Her spontaneous Magnificat is jam-packed full of Old Testament references. That's the kind of mom Jesus grew up with. And Joseph, the dad, was certainly no slouch either, described to us as a righteous man, no doubt fulfilling the command in Deuteronomy, you shall teach them diligently to your children. So then Jesus would, as a boy with a human mind, have been thoroughly taught the scriptures. So Jesus begins his ministry. Baptized in the Jordan, the Holy Spirit descending on him, the Father speaking aloud to praise him. Now let's notice something very important. What does it say about him as he begins? He is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is already filled with the Spirit prior to his baptism, but he goes forth in his humanity empowered by the Holy Spirit. From Luke. And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And after that, he goes to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he says to those in attendance, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Anointed him for what? To do all that the Father called him to do. Proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives and oppressed, Recovering of sight to the blind. In Acts, when Peter is recalling Jesus' ministry here on earth, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So this human was empowered in his humanity by the Holy Spirit. And we too if a human born-again believer are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Recall the very last thing Jesus said to his disciples, recorded in Acts, before being taken up to heaven. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As Paul says to you, believer, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, power to live in the obedience of faith. For Jesus, there is no mixture of his natures. Is he manifesting divinity all the time? Yes. He saw Nathanael under the fig tree, knew the woman had five husbands, knew what the Pharisees were thinking, knew who would betray him, knew Peter would deny him, knew Peter really did love him, knew who really did not believe in him. When he does miracles, is it the Holy Spirit working in him? Yes. He says to the Pharisees, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is living his sinless life empowered by the Spirit. The devil said to him in the wilderness, 
if you are the son of God, well, yes, true, he is. Then turn this stone into bread. Well, yes, he is God and could have done so if he'd improperly used his divinity, but he refused and endured in his humanity. Yes, Jesus walked on the water. Yes, he calmed the storm. Yes, he fed 4,000 and 5,000. But let's be certain. What do we know is true about our high priest? Jesus described in Hebrews. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He lives a sinless, perfect life by living in the weakness of human flesh, foregoing sin at every turn, the sinless Lamb of God, the only completely innocent human who, even though possessing true human frailty and temptations, arrived at his destination of the cross in that state of sinless human perfection by persevering, resisting, and battling sin by his human will in the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be our substitutionary sacrifice. Never once having called up, reached back, leaned on his divinity in any way that would disqualify him from being our high priest who could, would, and did sacrifice himself for us. There may be a glow around that picture of Jesus in some church sanctuaries, but the Son of God endured his human life and suffering without finessing things to bring in some divinity when his temptations and weaknesses were just too much for him. Hopefully, this way of living is a daily guide for we believers. We're not sinless. We're not God, but we live by our human will and the power of the Holy Spirit to walk the narrow path with Jesus as our guide. Now, what else does Hebrew say about our great high priest and his experience of being a human and its result? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect tempted as we are, of course, Jesus does not have a sinful nature as we do in the midst of our temptations. One might say, well, he's God, so it's not too tough for him. But that's a misunderstanding of temptations and sinning. How can we understand something about temptation? How about this check? How often are you tempted? How intensely are you tempted? For how long are you tempted? Was the devil tempting Jesus? He started right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. First thing, trying to tempt Jesus to sin. And then, as it says, leaving him until an opportune time. Was he tempting Jesus throughout his ministry? Well, the enemy surely wanted to foil the plans of God. For us, we have all been tempted, and we all fall short. We are tempted, and then we may sin. If you are tempted strongly for a bit, 
then given shortly, your temptation story would get a roll of the eyes. If you are tempted and resist and resist, you have experienced some severe temptation. But Jesus resisted permanently his entire life in everything. So let's have C.S. Lewis describe what may be counterintuitive, that he who doesn't sin knows temptation best. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what have, would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. So, how does the Bible summarize the lifelong struggle of Jesus? Well, Hebrews says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Jesus learned or experienced obedience in experiencing human suffering, not just ultimately at Gethsemane, but his entire temptation battling sinless life. And so he completed his work to be the perfect source of eternal salvation for those who believe and obey. So what was it like for Jesus being a human, living his life of ministry, serving the Father and serving those he came to 2,000 years ago? Well, besides the normal hunger and thirst and tiredness, things that don't happen to God, there are other awful things that could happen to a human but never to God. According to Isaiah 53, these things did happen to the man, Christ Jesus, marred, deformed, afflicted, wounded, crushed, oppressed, slaughtered, stricken, died. These were all for believers' sake and the glory of God. One passage from John's Gospel that brings out the depth of his humanity is raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, and Jesus comes to raise him from the dead. When Jesus saw the grief surrounding him and the others weeping, Jesus too was troubled and wept. 
Those watching say, see how he loved him. Jesus is troubled by all the grief and the experience of seeing the suffering that comes from human death. Jesus is the high priest who was able to sympathize with our weakness, having been tempted in every way, yet without sin. He has compassion for we weak, sinful creatures. Jesus himself experienced some of that sympathy, that compassion coming directly from heaven by angels sent to him in two very difficult moments. After 40 days of fasting and temptation, angels from heaven ministered to Jesus. And at Gethsemane too, at his greatest moment of human emotional trauma, angels came and strengthened him, physically somehow, probably, but also their presence powerfully encouraging and comforting and strengthening him. What's an attempt at an analogy? Well, when a mother goes to the hospital to help a new mom give birth, they're helping them some physically, but they're doing a whole lot of sympathizing, coaching, showing compassion and encouragement. They're doing something profound by their presence because they've been there, they know what it's like. And that presence, that sympathizing, that compassion helps give the new mom strength to make it through. Jesus is able to do something profound when he sympathizes with us in our weakness. An excellent reason to draw near to him. So this sympathizing with us that Jesus does, having fully experienced humanity, is more than just Jesus knowing about it, if we'll go to him in our weakness, what is this weakness? Recall what Jesus said to his disciples at the time of that greatest temptation at Gethsemane. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This weakness in which Jesus can sympathize with us is the same weakness, same word, as in Romans when Paul is speaking of his and our human weakness. He calls it our natural limitations of you obeying Christ and pursuing righteousness. And then Paul goes on there to say the result of his weakness is finding himself doing the very thing he hates and doesn't want to do. So he sums up his predicament. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And at the same time, saying Jesus is its only hope to overcome. And this hope is because he is in Christ. He is no longer under condemnation. He belongs to Jesus to battle through life. Jesus endured human weakness and offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears on earth. He ascended to the Father, yes, but he knows exactly what it's like. He knows we are dust. He knows we need help. So he sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is right here with believers by the Spirit, the one who sympathizes with our weakness, sinful failings, sufferings, body decay, sickness, persecution, failed plans, constant indecision, seeming futility of our life to make a difference. But of course, the God who is there 
is the God who has been here. Jesus knows all about loud cries and tears. He knows all about every type of human weakness and temptation. And now in heaven, he intercedes for us, having experienced all we humans do. He's gone. John, in John, he tells the disciples, I am going to him who sent me where I am. You cannot come. But, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. By the Holy Spirit, the helper has come. Then Paul says to you and me, since you are sons of God, you are led by the Spirit of God. So when Jesus walks with us, we are walking by the Spirit, so we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. All of this is not theological understanding for the sake of simply being knowledgeable. This is God telling we believers to do hard things, to live in obedience, but to do it with, through, by, because of, and to him. And he's saying, draw near to me, and I will to you. Not just some ordinary person, but the only one that truly knows every temptation and struggle of your heart and is always for you, always loving you in every so sovereign circumstance of life because you hear him call and he calls his sheep by name, your name. Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knows it's personal. Jesus constantly waiting for you to come to his throne of grace to help you in time of need, your constant need that only he really knows about. I dare say that this very old American ballad is not a whiny complaint, but a vital truth that leads us to Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrows. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. One can look at you, talk to you, and think they know you, but likely we really only have a small understanding of what the psalmist calls all that is within you. Paul has some words for the part of you only Jesus really knows, our inner self and your inner being. When Peter says adorning our inside is more important than adorning our outside, he calls it the hidden person of the heart. Each of us has joys and sorrows and battles and sins in our own human hearts that no one else can really fathom or understand. But there is one and only one, alive and well, who does know all those things about you. For believers, Jesus knows and forgives and rejoices and sympathizes if we'll go to him. If repentance, he's ready to minister. He's the expert in your need because he's experienced all the things we humans have weary in doing good, but stronger in God-glorifying trust. And so we walk on, 
And Jesus is already ahead of us, saying, follow me. I've been this way before, lifting us up, making you persevere through difficulties. Until the next one, we see his glory through his faithfulness. We say thank you that you know exactly what human weakness is. Is Christianity a crutch to get through everyday life? No, Christianity is not a crutch. If it were a crutch, that would mean I still have one good leg to walk on. But I have two weak knees and two weak legs. My Christianity is not a crutch, it's a walker. With wheels, yes, a walker that I have to constantly lean on, and if I didn't have it, I would fall on my face. Because Paul is correct. I am weak in my flesh. Sometimes I have considered plucking out my right eye and throwing it away, and considered cutting off my right hand and throwing it away. But no, my Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. He's been there, he did it by his human will and power of the Holy Spirit, and he says to us, I get it, let's do this, just keep walking. Walk like Paul often says. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. So believers, consider this. Do you have a zeal for the things of God? Are you determined to finish what the Father has called you to do? Do you have compassion for others in need? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus did all those things and did them perfectly. But also, do you get really angry? Do you get worn out physically and tired in your Christian life of doing good? Do you get rejected by people because you're a Christian? Do you trust and rely upon the Holy Spirit in you? to cause you to overcome. Jesus endured all those things perfectly without sin. So now, as we end, let's be practical as we think about following this human, Jesus Christ. He is the only perfect human ever. So, if we look back over his life, we see these very practical things which Jesus says to us is the blueprint for how to live, saying, be holy as I am holy. As a young boy and man, he immersed himself in the scriptures, memorizing much. He was always obedient and honoring his parents. Even while bleeding to death on the cross, he remembered to tell John to take care of his mother. 
He was busy at work as a carpenter, living and working for years in obscurity in a tiny town, being faithful to what God had for him to do in God's timing. Three years in ministry, but many more years than that in the woodshop. Battling temptations to sin. Giving his life to constantly serve and do good for the sake of others. Spreading the gospel everywhere. Being obedient to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Praying constantly. So, if you ever want to answer the question, what should I do with my life? Jesus has answered it. Father, we are sometimes forgetful and need to be reminded that this great God who's now ascended into heaven and intercedes for us and is in total glory and has gone to prepare, prepare a place for us and will take us to him and we will see him in unbelievable, unfathomable glory and we will rejoice in this great God in heaven forever and ever. But this is the, the same the same person who we will, when looking upon him, we will see the nail marks in his hands. And we will be reminded that he was here, born of a virgin, lived that sinless life with every possible temptation, tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin, the only true realist who knows fully what temptation is in a human. And Jesus, you are the one who sympathizes with us. You were gracious and sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, into the hearts of those who believe to our inner being, our inmost self, the secret place of the heart of each believer. And so, Lord, you sympathize, you guide, you forgive when we come in repentance. You minister to us constantly guiding us, telling us to be careful as we walk, to walk that narrow path that you have laid out for us. So, Lord, we are in awe of you, that you came, you lived, you bled, you died, and you rose again. What a great God that we have. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Again, may it go down into our inmost being, let us go forth from here and just live in that glorious truth for us who are saved that we belong to that great King, Jesus Christ. Amen.